Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. I'm your host, Douglas Hand. And today, we are joined by gender-free designer, Renat Brodosh. Renat, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Douglas. Thank you for having me here. Of course. Well, this has been long overdue. Uh, and let us start with gender-free design. Uh, I mean, um, I think for all many listeners, they'll, they'll understand exactly what that is. But for those that don't, or for those that may have some misunderstanding of what gender-free design is, in your own words. I think that it's very simple. I think a lot of people like to complicate this and put it in a box, you know, make it be an LGBTQ plus, um, you know, design, but it's not like my whole purpose here is to make clothes for everybody and not put it, not put labels on it, female, male. Like if you wake up this morning and you decide you want to wear a skirt, go for it, be your true self. I don't want to limit nobody from being their true self. And I think, you know, I think everybody deserves to feel fashionable. Doesn't doesn't matter what gender you identify with, your body type, your color, your religion. This is clothes for everybody. You know, I'm just making clothes here. And I think people have taken this gender neutral, gender fluid to like different directions where it's it's very simple. It's just making clothes. And it's like if you decide if I want to wear a men's suit today, why not? If, you know, yesterday I wore my partner's like full look and why not? Like, you know, it's about a feeling. It's about how, what you, how you want to portray yourself, how you wake up in the morning. Um, it's very basic. I don't know why people are complicating it. <laughs> yeah, well, let me, let me, you know, I'll play devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> you know, on some level, I think when people hear gender-free or gender-fluid, they think of, for, for instance, my tailored clothing has what, what many would consider to be almost male signifiers embedded in it. Right. Mm -hmm. There there is an element to to a man's suit, which yeah. attempts attempts <laughs> to bring the wearer to kind of this this masculine ideal, which is broader shouldered than waist, right? And and somewhat slimming, but you know, kind of bulking you up in certain ways. And 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 maybe similarly, there are items of traditionally uh, feminine dress that that might signify femininity. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, to the extent we're talking about a man wearing a skirt, which I know on most of the planet, that's never been a big deal, right? Because you look at Southeast Asia and the sarong is worn. Scotland. Exactly. Exactly. But let's, 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 let, let's start with this question, which is, are there signifiers embedded in certain items of dress, which kind of inherently don't make them gender neutral, but I, the gender free dresser can pick and choose and sample from all of them. Exactly. I think I think the gender free dresser can pick and choose from whatever they want to, but you know, to be honest, you know, there are certain items that like I make if it's like a certain dress that maybe, you know, will be more suited for an actually like female, but if you know the the male decides that he wants to wear it, you know, power to you, get it. But, you know, there are certain things that like, you know, 
maybe when I'm designing, I do think of a woman and not a man. Um, but you know, I think it's just in the end of the day, it's just making clothing. And yes, there are the classical shapes of like the men's suit and the skirt and the dress that are female and that's male. In the end of the day, it's like, like I don't want to sound repetitive, but it's just clothing. And I feel everybody deserves to feel fashionable and to feel themselves and how they however they want to express themselves that day. I was riding a bike right now and I saw this person, you know, going to work and they were wearing, I'm going to say they, cause I'm not sure about their gender, but they were wearing a dress in Converse. And I was like on the bike and I had this biggest smile because I was so proud of this person for expressing their true self. And I think in today's world, it's a little hard to do that. You know, people will immediately put you in a box and alienate you and you're not part of a trend. Um, so this is my contribution to help others, you know, live their truest life. Well, let me let me ask as well, because it may also help some listeners. What are some other contemporary brands that you appreciate from a gender free perspective that you think are articulating that well? I've always loved Margiela. I think Margiela was has always been, you know, maybe like aspire, you know, gender. They had gender, you know, sparkle in them since the beginning of it, because you know, uh, Marta Margiela was all about making just clothing. I don't think he thought about like who was going to wear it, but, you know, he had a concept. It was more of an artistic vision. And I don't think he really thought about the wear as much. And I think that is, you know, Margiela has been a big inspiration on that, like taking like, you know, oversized tees and oversized tees is like something I think a man would wear. And, you know, it's become something that anybody could wear. Um, I think Rick Owens um, has always been, you know, kind of that person of doing gender-free clothing. Um, I think those are like my main top two that like, you know, I look up to and I think they've always had those gender-free points within them. They've always, they've never excluded, you know, Rick Owens will put men in skirts and other dresses and stuff like that. And I think, you know, he's always been thinking about a silhouette and you know, even if it's like the way, you know, he sends out the models, they always come out with pale faces or something like that, because, you know, in the end of the day, they're kind of hangers and he wants the clothes to speak for their own and not the gender. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so let's let's go to your education, uh, because I imagine uh, it, it was based or rooted uh, in in the traditional bifurcation of, of male fashion. And, and female fashion. Well, I know you studied in San Francisco, uh, but you know, just tell us about that background and how it informed your design. Um, so just like when I started the brand originally, like it was a woman's wear brand. Um, we can talk about that later. You know, in 2017, I transition, transitioned into um, the whole gender-free aspect. But when I was in school, I was very like, you know, directed towards, you know, women's wear clothing. Um, I was very fortunate to have these amazing mentors and professors at the school and everybody came from Europe um, where, you know, they, they, I was trained to work in the atelier and, you know, in Paris, London, Italy, you know, I was trained to work in the real world of fashion that I considered to be in Europe. Um, so I was very fortunate to like, you know, have, these amazing mentors that come from backgrounds of Alexander McQueen and Vivian Westwood and Margiela and, um, you know, Japanese knitwear. Um, and then, you know, I think it was like rooted 
because of like all these amazing mentors, I got to learn, you know, Vivian Westwood's draping tricks. And even in my design, like it was for women, but there was always a masculine aesthetic to it. There was always like a broad shoulder or just like, I was always inspired by menswear. Like um, I think my thesis collection was somewhat inspired. There were like touches on um, old school men's like battle, you know, um, battle gear and stuff like that, or like tailored jackets. Um, that I took it on further and made it into my own twist and you know women in the end wore it in my collection um, but our school was very there was no gender free section if this is where we're going to um, it was very rooted in being you and expressing yourself it was very about learning the rules and then breaking the rules mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was very valuable um, to me, you know, to learn the ABC of how things are made and how things should be, but then taking it further with your own, with your own concept. And really like I had full range of express, like I would come to school with like these crazy inspirations where like the teacher had to take me aside and be like, you need to like chill out and like, you know, maybe not use a picture of Nan Golden of somebody shooting up as your inspiration. Um, you know, it was always very creative. I always took things to like, I always was pushing the boundaries. And I think this is something the school gave me is freedom of expression and to be your true self. So I'm very grateful for that. That's a great point. I mean, I, I often ask designers about their educational background because I do think it's, it's important. And there's an important component to that education in the actual making. Yeah. And that you learn the craft. But I think... You're the first person who's answered the question that you also were taught to, in a sense, think like a designer. You know, in law school, you're often not taught the actual law. You're really taught to kind of approach any legal issue from the perspective of a lawyer. And not to throw shade at like FIT or Parsons. I just think that they, you know, they educate their students to be creative directors more and not um, designers. I think that's that, that's a whole different thing, but there's pluses and minuses. But I'm really happy that you know I got that education of what a designer is and does, and you know, but thank you. <laughs> and after San Francisco, uh, you spent time learning in Paris. Tell us about that. Um, so I, um, after I graduated, I you know graduated top of my class, and I won a scholarship to go to haute couture school um, called. Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne. Yves Saint Laurent went there. Um, so that was very interesting to go and, you know, into this school and, you know, just be there for a year and just see how they do things. Um, but more, I was more interested in getting a job with Lonvin at the time. Albert Elbaz, rest in peace, was there. And he's a designer I've always looked up to. Um, bless his soul, like the creativity of this man. Um, so that was my main goal, because I told myself after graduation, I'm going to Paris. I don't know how, but I'm going to Paris and kind of fell on my lap. Um, and I was working in Paris afterwards for um, a designer. Her name is Steffi Christians. Um, she's still around today, but I think she's scaled down a bit in just doing like accessories. Um, but that was a great experience. Um, I'm really happy I got to have this job with her. And it was, you know, it wasn't a big fashion house, but, you know, she was showing in Paris Fashion Week and, you know, she was in magazines and Gaga was wearing her stuff. Um, but it was just great because it wasn't just like me coming to work and sitting on a computer all day. It was literally 
doing everything. Like you had your hands in all the jars, if it was, you know, set design, um, you know, flat sketches, um, you know, hand sewing stuff or like going and sourcing or driving to Belgium and picking up leather. Um, it was, you know, from like A to Z, like what, what happens within a fashion house. And I'm really fortunate that it was a very small place that I got to see things um, and took that with me to when I started my own brand. And then after I was done with Steffi, I worked for, you know, I freelanced for some other like designers, pattern makers. And there was some issue with like the French green card. And I was, I had a huge dilemma because, you know, I'm dual citizens. I was like, do I go back to Israel or New York? And I feel like my whole life was preparation to move to New York. And then, so I moved to New York in 2012. This weekend, I'm celebrating 10 years in New York. Uh, yeah. Um, and then I came to New York and it was really hard to find a job. It was super hard. Like I was going with my portfolios to headhunters and just different brands. And everybody was like, oh, you're too creative. Like, you know, too much. Um, this is too sexy. And I'm like, what? Like, and from all my other friends that I graduated with that were working in the industry in New York, a lot of them were just, you know, working for a lot of fast fashion companies, um, you know, where they were like just on the computer doing flat sketches, um, you know, copying stuff. And I was like, that's not the life I want to have. You know, I don't want to be sitting in some computer all day and doing flat sketches and knocking off stuff so it could be, you know, mass produced, like, you know, crazy in China. So I was, I was kind of, I got to this point where I was like, okay, I can't find a job. Let me just jump in the water right now. And see see my luck and then I started off as a women's wear designer um you know I did New York Fashion Week I had PR I was doing Trenoy and all these shows like Magic Coterie whatever right um you know and I had some really good moments within that but you know I lost funding in 2017 and I thought it was the end of my world how am I going to continue forward and I kind of, it was kind of a rebellious act for me on my end to transform into this gender-free brand just because I was kind of fed up with industry and just the way things are going. And I felt that, it, I don't know if racist is the right word, but I just felt that it was maybe excluding a lot of people and excluding a lot of different brands and just what's on trending. And, it, you know, I just felt like it wasn't about the work anymore. So I decided to transition into this gender-free and making clothes for everybody. Um, so yeah, that's how I kind of ended up in New York. And I realized that, you know, money is very important, but there are ways to make things work if you really want this. How, how were you trained, whether at school or that first job with, with Steffi, um, to start your own brand? Do you feel that your educational background gave you enough business education to be able to start a company not really to be honest um i wish that there were more business classes in my school i think they offered business courses for like you know the visual merchandise or like the merchandising people not the fashion designers i wish there was more touches on the business and to be honest i learned business from just being out in the field in the war zone and also my dad is a great businessman so you know I would take advice from him and regardless this is fashion you know he sells a product so it's not the same thing but I think there are some you know connecting points that we could you know discuss on and stuff like that so he was a big help and a huge inspiration for me um, but I wish there was more I think I think 
the business part of this is very important because I think a lot of people that get into design, they think, oh, I just want to be famous and do runway shows. But it's not about that. You know, in the end of the day, you got to make a living and pay your bills. And it's not about being famous. You know, we're not finding the cure for cancer. We're just making clothes. <laughs> well, on that, you know, the, the fame element, which um, is is somewhat inherent in in being a designer, but certainly becomes the case when you name the brand after yourself. Mm -hmm. So were there thoughts as you approached the launch of your business about naming it after yourself, not naming it after yourself? And how has that process or that decision um, impacted you in terms of investment and, and licensing? Um, so I think my main point of why I named it after my name is... Um, so I discovered this like a little later in life, um, but my grandmother's father, um, he was murdered in the Holocaust. He was a tailor and he, you know, was an orphan. And I think some dude in Prague taught him the work. And he would like, my grandmother would tell me like, he would just take with chalk and just draw and like make suits for all. Like he was very famous in their town, make suits for all like the government people and I just felt that it was something in me that I have to continue the name. Like me and him did not have the same last name, but it was just, it's kind of like a winning moment almost that like I'm alive and I'm here. And it was very important to put, to put my name on it. Just to continue that, to continue that vibe. And, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's inherently a legacy to what you do and, and also a stamp of, of the artistry, you know, like any artist that, that signs their work. Um, so back to gender-free design mm -hmm. and maybe to get a little political, um, there certainly are more conservative quarters that <laughs> you <laughs> gender fluidity, right. That view gender fluidity as, um, you know, something that, that for children, for instance, shouldn't be taught in school, shouldn't, shouldn't be sensitized because children are too young and don't know enough. Uh, goes the argument to make a decision in terms of their own gender. And certainly those conservative parents have a preference as to which gender their child is going to choose. I won't generalize greatly, but I assume most of them would prefer that their children maintain their, their, their birth gender. Um, what are your thoughts about that as a gender-free designer? Um, I'm going to share um, a dear friend of mine. Um, she has a child and when their child was, I think four, three, um, they came out and they said that they don't feel that they're in their own body <clears throat> and they, they want to be a male. And, uh, my friend has a trans um, child, they, them, um, they go to like a queer school this is on the West coast. Um, I think they are like around nine or eight now, but, um, my good friend is a huge inspiration. I think, you know, just accepting their child for who they are and not wanting to change them. I think that is, that is so progressive. And it's just, it's just a very beautiful outlook to, you know, not scarring your children or like, you know, causing, you know, even more, you know, shit. So that when the kid grows up, like you don't know what will happen, but all she could do is just give love and embrace their, their child. Um, and interesting that you talk about that. I was recently 
I was recently in um, Arkansas this past March for their fashion week. And I was a part of a panel with um, Walmart and the main buyer from Walmart of like 30 years was there. And, you know, um, there's other people that you may know on the panel, but anyways, um, in the end of it, I had to ask her a question because, you know, she was going on and on about how everybody in America lives within a 10 mile radius from a Walmart. And, you know, when I travel to these places and I'm wearing something like they're like, oh, where is this from? And I'm like, oh, this T-shirt's from Zara, like whatever. They're like, what's a Zara? So Walmart is the main ruler of America, apparently. So I asked this woman, I was like, how are you preparing for the new generation of trans binary, non-binary children? Like there is a huge wave of, you know, all these kids coming out and wanting to express themselves and be who they are. And she kind of choked. She was like, nowadays, when you have a baby, you don't have to put them in, in pink or blue. You can put them in like black or camel or mixing different fabrications. And I feel like this country is getting into, you know, a, this, this movement of, you know, kids coming out and being who they are. And regardless if you're binary, non-binary, you're still identifying with something. And I think there, there should be more embracement because you're not going to be able to change this child or, you know, convince them or send them to some like camp that you see on these crazy, like crazy TV right. shows or whatever. Right. Um, well, there's a commercial imperative as well. I mean, I think we've seen this with uh, sustainability environmentally, that, that a consciousness about apparel production has finally bubbled to the surface that, that is having an economic impact and that, that brands are really seeing if we don't turn the ship, we're going to be dinosaurs. And like, I think you're absolutely right on, on gender free as well. It's certainly not going to be every consumer, and but it's going to be a huge segment of the consuming public. And the business of fashion, as you well know, really has this bifurcation where buyers for wholesale accounts either align women's wear or men's wear. Men's wear. Um, yeah. But to, to speak, to add something else, I think that, you know, out of all these big companies in America, I think Target is doing a great job with, I think they're on that path of, you know, just creating that space for, you know, these people that, you know, identify with trans, non-binary, LGBTQ+. Um, I think Target is doing a great job with with that. I think they're very progressive and I think they're on that train that uh, I think a lot of companies, these bigger companies, you know, should be on because these are these only these are the only points of access for so many millions of kids in this country that don't, don't live in New York or California. Yeah, no, that's great to point out. I, I appreciate that. Pivoting a bit. So you were a finalist for Fashion Group International's uh, Rising Star Award for Gender Free Design. Um, you also were on Amazon's um, design show making the cut uh as, as we both know cfda has annual awards for designs how, how do you feel about design awards and um you know kind of making an entertainment spectacle out of who the best designer of any given year is um i i have mixed feelings about all of this because you know i think sometimes there's a lot of politics involved in these things and people forget about the work and I'm in this for the work I know my talents I know what I can give and I'm in this for the work I'm not into the politics of it and I feel like sometimes the industry is losing that notion it's about politics about money it's about who's wearing your stuff and they forget about the work 
this is what we're all here for is the work. Um, so I have mixed feelings about it because I feel like a, a, some part of the industry is losing touch with with the, that original feeling of like the 90s, like when fashion was, you know, really have the prime of fashion, in my opinion. I think since the rise of social media, it's kind of lost it and it's going in different ways now, um, fashion. But, um, you know, to be on a TV show, it was a great opportunity. I'm really happy. It was a great jumping points I think it helped my business um big time but you know it's reality tv it's not real life um so there's a, a little bit of politics huh? in there too <laughs> um there's some politics you know involved in there too but you know I'm just I'm very grateful to you know I've had that opportunity um and to like meet my like style icons like Karine Reutfeld and Naomi Campbell like all my life I've been waiting to meet those two women and get you know get some like constructive criticism from them and you know advice and it was such an honor to like what the fuck like she's Naomi Campbell's giving me gummy bears right now <laughs> like well it also speaks to the general consuming public's genuine interest in fashion and not just what's on the racks but who's behind it and yeah. and and to a degree yes it's not reality but it's at least Proximate. I mean, it, it at least highlights some actual design, the work that goes into yeah. and is behind the, the, the clothing. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea to like, you know, film and like, you know, show the people your work. I think, you know, people do want to see who you are and what you do and where do you go and who do you hang out with? And I think it's all a part of that process. But, you know, it's about the clothes in the end of the day. Right. Right. Well, back to the business of fashion. We've been in a decades-long moment of many brands pulling away from the traditional wholesale model where they sold to the Targets and Walmarts, if not the Bergdorfs and the Barneys of the world, uh, more and more to a direct-to-consumer type environment. And while that seems very democratizing, for small brands because direct to consumer, as it implies, you are engaging directly with your consuming public. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one would think that, that smaller uh, brands and designers would have perhaps a leg up on that. As we both know, the costs of engaging in that in terms, because that all takes place on the internet. I mean, unless you have 180 stores, yeah, <laughs> you, you don't have brick and mortar locations where you can engage directly with your consumers. And so you do that online. But the crowded, just absolutely chaotic search engine optimization, you know, many brands, if you search their names, you don't get to the brand's website until passing mm -hmm. through all of the big three or big five retailers uh, and or uh, someone in some foreign location who's selling um, actually pirated goods. Um, and so do you, do you agree that that's sort of become actually a problem and that the startup costs are, are in fact even higher in this direct to consumer environment than they were when we were in the nineties and perhaps it was more purely wholesale? Well, I think the whole direct to consumer, I love it. I like to engage with my customers. I like to hear what they want. Um, and I also like to make the whole amount of money to my pocket and not share it with the store. <laughs> So I like that part, um, but you know, it's a whole different job than making clothes. It's like, I think during the pandemic, 
I, you know, I, I took like these Coursera classes on like social media, um, you know, like targeting and like ads and like, it's a whole complete different job. And I just, I feel like I need another person like me duplicate myself to like, just do that because, you know, it's like creating content and there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, to be honest, I don't think maybe because I'm not working on this huge scale, like, you know, Target or like these other big, bigger brands. Um, I don't think it's that expensive. I think when it comes to like the ads and, and that aspect, I think, you know, I get emails every day of like, you know, pay this much and you'll have these many views and you'll get back 30 grand and all that. I think a lot of it is spam. Um, you know, I haven't met that right person to work on the digital marketing together with, but to me, being direct to consumer is more cost efficient for me um, as I don't have huge budgets to, you know, produce, produce, produce and like do shoot content every day, all day. Um, so for me, it kind of works out this way better. And I don't know, I, I would love to have my own store and, you know, push it even further to direct to consumer, you know, because I whenever I do pop ups and I engage with people, I get the best results. Yeah, I think online is a great thing, but it's like all these search engines and it's a lot of time and effort. <laughs> well, it is a luxury to have that direct to consumer in the yeah. traditional sense, actually face to face, um, whether that can be achieved through pop up or your own atelier or it, it is a dream for most designers, I think. Um, and, and rooted in in the traditional way in which brands in in Europe specifically kind of rose. Uh, mm -hmm. prominence. Uh, so let's talk a bit. Before you, yep. before, you, um, before you continue, but to yep. go back to the whole direct-to-consumer, I just feel like with the direct-to-consumer, I have more control of like what I'm doing. If it's the website, the content, like everything, I just, I feel more in control and it's like, I'm not relying on some store, some buyer to sell my clothes. It's like I'm in control of it. So yeah. There's no heart feelings here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. Um, well, as we've discussed with the awards and with the shows about designers and just the presentation of mm -hmm. fashion, almost everybody uniformly feels that it is a glamorous industry. Mm -hmm. But being on the inside of it and dealing with it day to day, I mean, what are some of your daily frustrations and maybe some anecdote about sort of the non-glamorous aspect of getting your product out there? Um, budgets. I think budgets, it's always like looking for money or like, how am I going to make this or creative solutions? Um and, you know, after a minute, I do make it work somehow. I have, you know, if I'm like, I create a new line of like made to order um, due to like budgets, I feel like I'm not going to wait for a miracle to fall on me. I'm going to go out and like make it happen for myself. So you got to be creative. And like, as much as I'm very frustrated about the money issue, like I can't let my mind be consumed about money, money, money. Like, I feel like that takes away so much wind in any designer, the money part. And I can't focus on that because then shit won't happen here. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, in that aspect, that is a very, budgets are very frustrating to me. Um, this is a very dirty business. It's not glamorous at all. There's a lot of hard work and sweat and tears that go into it. You know, like my fashion school was the same equivalent to medical school. 
I feel like, yes, we're not saving lives, but it's a lot of hard work. This is not industry that's like you push a button and the garment is made unless you're doing 3D printing. But it's a lot of like standing on your feet and, you know, making your patterns and the the first twalls and the fittings and, you know, getting your message out there. It's not, it's not, this is a very tough business and you have to have tough skin to be in this business and you really want to want this so bad. And a stupid frustrating thing that is when I'm walking around garment district and I see women in heels and I'm like, okay, you're not a designer. You're not a designer because a designer is not going to work in heels. Like I'm in barefoot my Birkenstocks or sneakers. Like you're standing on your feet all day. You're running from the cutting room to this, to here. And I'm like, really? You're wearing heels today, girl? <laughs> yeah, so I can no, identify that's, a, that's a great example of, of, you know, in some sense, the lack of glamour um, and, and the real- I don't dress up when I come to work. Like I wear, you know, if I'm going to a meeting or like a presentation or a talk with you, you know, I'll dress up, but I'm here working, you know, I'm ironing, I'm on the machine all day. Like, I don't care. <laughs> well- how about style inspirations? And I guess I would encourage you, if you can, to, to focus on those that may have had a, a gender-free design influence on you. I mean, you know, when I think about that, I think of, and maybe it's just because I'm old, but Diane Keaton or David Bowie, but obviously, you know, Harry Styles or Zendaya. Lenny Kravitz. I mean, or, pardon? Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz, for sure. So yeah, don't let me, I, hopefully I didn't steal your thunder with any of those examples, but who are some of them for you? Um, Lenny Kravitz, John Galliano. John Galliano's like personal style um, that I admire. Um, I think Karin Reutfeld is a great, is an amazing style icon from going from more femme to more butch vibe. Um, Naomi Campbell is also definitely a style icon of mine. Um, Tilda Swinton is a great style icon, I think, in that whole gender-free spirit. Um, you know, and to be honest, I looked at the streets, like the streets and like how people move and the shoes that people wearing. And I think I love people watching. I think that is like my biggest like inspiration to see like what, like how our society has evolved today. And like, you know, more straight men are wearing pink and purple and like, just different colors and ex exploring the expression. Um, I think the street is the best, the best like, you know, style icon just to see how people are feeling and expressing themselves. Well, it leads to my next question, which is what cities, and maybe give me three. I mean, are there cities that in your mind exhibit amazing, and I know street style is kind of a hackneyed, but you know, people that are just out doing their daily daily so... uh, that are exhibiting great style. Not to talk about politics, I'm a fashion designer, not a politician, but with certain politics that are happening in this country, but even before it, I've always felt that, you know, the safest places to be your true self are New York and California. I think that is the most like that and, you know, in Europe too, I think there are places in like, you know, London, you know, Berlin, you have it. Um, in In Paris, you also have it. But in terms of America, I think it's only... New York and California, I would, you know, salute like any, you know, man, woman that, you know, is expressing themselves all over America. I think that's amazing. But I really do think that like, these are the two main places in America. Uh, and any other international cities that you can think of? You, you mentioned Berlin, you mentioned Paris, Paris. Paris. I also really believe Tel Aviv is like a very 
um, up and coming in that sense of expression. Um, you know, it's the number one gay destination in the Middle East. Um, so there is a lot of expression happening there. Um, great style. Um, and, you know, you can be your true self there. And, you know, San Francisco is definitely like a place, but yeah, it's California. Um, I was in Italy this summer and maybe because it was summer and like it was kind of empty, but I didn't know. I did not see any stylish people. <laughs> um, but Paris is definitely, oh, Tokyo. When I was in Tokyo, amazing style. Like when I was on Cat Street in Harajuku, I, I think, yeah, it was, I was just like floored. I was just so amazed by like the street style there and how, you know, what women are wearing, like they were just like more butch and it's like punk rock vibe and mixing different patterns with this like careless, I don't give a F and just very, a lot of confidence. And I was very inspired by that. It was a great, it was like just a really eye opening because I could think the Japanese can be a little conservative or just traditional. And I was just like, I loved seeing like that scene in Japan. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great style scene. Um, well, related influencers and the influencer economy, its impact on fashion. What do you think about it? Do you make use of influencers yourself? If you see that Billy Porter is wearing something of yours, do you uh, do you either reach out or or promote it in some way? Um. Somebody, I would, I don't know if I would, like Billy Porter, yes, he's influenced a lot of people in the world, but I don't know if I would, you know, be like influencer of that, that, that term, that social media person that like, you know, will email you. If you give me this garment, I'll like post it on my thing. And I have like a hundred K followers. Like, you know, Billy Porter is an artist. He's an actor. Um, he's a singer. I, I don't know. Like he does influence people, but I don't know if I would put it, give him that title. Um, you know, I, I yes, I would be that photo of Billy wearing my garment for sure but I think that notion of you know people becoming influencers I think to me you know I think there are legit people within that circle but I think it's part of the notion of just grabbing a piece of that pie of like oh like let's be an influencer and like I get dms all the time like oh let's collab and like send me a piece of yours and I'll post send it for free and I'll post it on my end and like I'm like who are you I've never heard of you you know and it just there's a lot of that going on I have never encountered a legit influencer um I would give Chiara Ferrani the main hat for the influence I think she started that whole vibe um of influencers and she actually really succeeded in it so she is an amazing influencer I think of like what she is what she has built from social media um so people like that I have haven't had the chance to really engage with but I'm only getting like spam maybe influencers <laughs> <laughs> well what about um another related topic brand collaborations I and love here I'm thinking more brand to brand Sometimes that happens with a retailer. Sometimes that happens with an influencer who's trying to create a brand. Sometimes it happens organically with brands that have products that are adjacent to yours or, or maybe even completely unrelated. What do you think about that? Do you, do you feel that um, it's, it's confusing to consumers or that it's, it's kind of a moment where you can create some excitement? I think collaborations are amazing. Um, I truly believe that like, you know, not one person could do it all. Like we're, we are stronger together. And I think there's a power in a collaboration, even if, you know, you're from the same world or you're from like opposite forces. I think there's a power that comes together when creating. I am um, working with this amazing designer right now. Um, her name is Mackenzie. 
Her brand is um, Manhattan Bleach. She's a textile designer. Um, amazing. Like she's been creating fabrics for me for my new collection that's coming out New York Fashion Week. Um, and it's just like amazing, like how much joy we bring one another from these collabs. Like just like I'm amazed with what she's doing. And then she's amazed of like what I am taking her fabric and what am I turning it into? And it's just this magical moment. And I think collabs, like I had a collaboration with Puma um, that that was suit that was from a different end super dope like going into that like big office and like working with this like billion dollar company um that that was amazing and I was I think a little worried about it in the beginning but they were super open-minded to like all my designs because you know you're thinking this is like you know some it's a huge industry um and I was a little worried about coming with like my like huge ideas to them and it was I, I thought it was like a great experience to go into that corporate office and have a collaboration on a different experience than like this artsy collab I'm doing yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, but I think they're great. And I think sharing is caring. And I think more people that maybe that have the same ideals or have a great energy connection should collaborate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Puma has a good reputation, which I think serves those larger collaboration partners well to have that good reputation. Cause I'll tell you as legal counsel that advises brands on collaborations all the time, it's nice to be able to say, yeah, we've had seven clients do work with Puma and not one has complained um, versus other collaborations, which sometimes don't go so smoothly. And also I think like, I think a lot of companies like Adidas, like, you know, they're reaching out to young designers via Instagram or whatever for collaborations. And I think the number one is super sweet. I think that is like a great way to lift, you know, a designer that's just starting out or getting somebody found, like really giving them a spotlight and like making it about the work. And I think like collaborate, it's just like a great, it's a great thing to collaborate. More people should do it to not keep it to themselves. Well, that is a great note to finish on, Renat. Thank oh, you thank so you. much uh, well, for coming you. on this late summer episode of The Laws of Style. Uh, very much looking forward to seeing your work in September. And um, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Douglas. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for this. <laughs> Bye now, everybody. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.